Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 314. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. And it is 2014. It's a new year. This is our first episode of the year. And as has been our practice, either to close the year or to begin a new year, we look back upon the previous year and bring to you a whole bunch of highlights and the best moments from various episodes. So we want to do that. We've collected a whole bunch of clips. I have 13 clips for 2013. We're going to bring them to you today. Uh, we get to relive all these great discussions and perhaps hear some things uh, for the very first time. I'll put a link to all these uh, clips in the show notes. You'll be able to download them and uh, listen to them to your heart's content. Uh, but before we get into our series of great moments, I do need to mentioned the Christ the Center is listener supported. We thank you so much for all the people that have supported us throughout 2013, especially those that uh, supported us at the year end, getting uh, donations in just before the calendar turned. We thank you so much. It helps us to continue producing and distributing all of our programs free of charge. It also gives us great encouragement. Uh, we are volunteers here and we love working, but it, we do have expenses, uh, equipment, and uh, it does cost to distribute all these things. So we do encourage you to visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support today. We're so excited uh, to get into 2014 and we have a whole host of things we have lined up. We're going to be attending some conferences, uh, perhaps uh, doing some new things on our own end. We've got this new Voss group going on where we want to uh, walk through Gerhardus Voss's book, Biblical Theology, with Lane Tipton. A whole great new opportunities, a whole slate of new programs and things we have, uh, projects lined up, but we need your help. So visit us online today at reformforum.org slash donate to pledge your support. Our first episode, the first clip we want to speak about in this highlights is episode number 265. We spoke about Gospels Harmonization with Vern Poitras. Now, harmonization is clearly something that people have been addressing and thinking about for uh, millennia. Um, what are some different general approaches, and maybe even some theologians you might use as examples, that, that represent different approaches to harmonizing the different accounts that we have in the Gospels? Well, the Church tradition through the centuries has been to recognize that the Bible is the Word of God, and I think it's been that way because the Bible clearly testifies in its own pages to that character of, of, that it has. And so through the generations, until the Enlightenment, the dominant pattern in the Church has been to uh, trust God in what he says, but then also uh, to deal with uh, apparent discrepancies. And uh, there's a few outstanding people. I depend uh, and refer to St. Augustine and John Calvin, uh, more than any others, because they both wrote extensively. Augustine wrote a whole book, The Harmony of the Gospels, or Harmony of the Evangelists, that comes off uh, in English with two different titles. And uh, John Calvin wrote uh, Harmony of the Synoptics. Uh, both authors go through in detail uh, differences between the Gospels and discuss them, and they discuss them in the context of uh, thoroughgoing trust in uh, God as the divine author and therefore the truthfulness of all the accounts. 
uh, Augustine even more elaborately. Uh, before him, Irenaeus uh, has some remarks about the four Gospels that indicate he, too, is aware of the differences between them, but it also is uh, understood those differences in the context of divine uh, faithfulness and truth. I think it's valuable to know that because this is really not a new problem. In fact, there are very few of these issues that Augustine didn't know about and discuss and deal with and present a harmonization for. In episode number 267, we spoke with Dr. Daryl Hart about the reorganization of Old Princeton. One thing you've mentioned before in, in classes and lectures and also even in this article is the history of Presbyterianism seen through two cities, mainly New York and Philadelphia. And most of the time you, you, you say what comes from New York is usually bad, <laughs> and right. what comes from Philadelphia is oftentimes good. <laughs> Princeton itself is, is geographically roughly in between the two. How uh, was it caught in the middle of, of some of these developments leading up to, and then I guess beginning in 1922? Well, in some ways you can trace that all the way back to the... Um the colonial era, mm. where Princeton is in the Presbytery of New Brunswick, which was a presbytery created to give the new side ministers like Gilbert Tennant, who was a fairly fiery preacher at the time, and not really abiding <clears throat> pardon me, the rules well of, of the Presbyterian Church. Um, so this was, the Presbytery of New Brunswick was sort of a release valve for a lot of the hot minded um, uh, revivalists and um, and so it has a it has a, a new side pro revival in some ways anti ecclesiastical tinge from its beginning and yet that's where Princeton Seminary is located and most of its faculty through the years are members of that presbytery um, <clears throat> so uh, and it's situated midway between Philadelphia and Princeton and I mean Philadelphia and New York, and but I think in some ways that the, the the balance of power is with New. Well, it it depends on where the headquarters of the Presbyterian Church are. If the headquarters are in Philadelphia, um, it's it maybe Philadelphia has more weight with Princeton. But if if when headquarters shift to New York, um, it's going to have more uh, balance. The balance of power will shift there. Because again, Princeton is, a, is an agency of the General Assembly, and so in, in the tw- in 1920s, by that point, the headquarters for the Presbyterian Church were located more directly in in New York City, even New York City, even though Philadelphia itself still had at the Witherspoon Building there at uh, Chancellor Street and Walnut, this great building of the um, the Sabbath School. Oh yeah, board and and Presbyterian publications, some agency like that. It's it's. Um, I think for a while it was more or less the headquarters for the Presbyterian Church, and then it eventually became m- mainly the publication center for the Presbyterian Church. When I think the stated clerk and other officers in the church would have been in New York City, um, but so Princeton was old school, but still caught in some ways, caught up in the politics of the church. And and I and I think uh, it was it was never going to escape that, and the reorganization of 1929 was very much proof of that. In episode number 268, we spoke about regeneration and redemptive history with Scott Wright. 
Dr. Wright, could you please uh, give us, after being in the pastorate for a number of years, the typical way you think the average Christian thinks of the doctrine of regeneration and drawing on some of the things you've just, the kind of orientation that you're trying to get us or the reader to understand regarding this doctrine? Sure. I think if I'm, if my experience is right, it, it seems to me that the typical believer, when he thinks of regeneration, uh, tends to see it simply as a work of, of God, a generic work of God inside the soul, which it, in one sense it is, but it leads him to focus largely upon the inward part, you know, his insides, what's, what's happening within him and him alone. And so that tends, to, um, that tends to make him think of his conversion simply in terms of, uh, of, of the steps that he's taking uh, as a Christian, whereas I think, if I'm right in terms of the biblical revelation, what's happening in regeneration really is that the kingdom of God is advancing. These eschatological powers have invaded time and space, and we're now, because of the work of Christ and our union with him, enabled to participate in this grand eschatological new world that he's introduced. Mm-hmm. So it's it's sort of like uh, in the end I'll talk about um, preaching and the, you know ordo salutis preaching ordo salutis the order of salvation tends to have something like a spiritual centripetal force which directs the focus inward whereas this wonderful redemptive historical perspective and especially with regeneration has something like a spiritual centrifugal centrifugal force which moves out, directs out, helps us to look at this grand drama and the things of Christ. I really appreciate that perspective, Dr. Wright. I'm, I'm drawing on your uh, your abstract here and your dissertation. I actually have to pulling it down from the shelf here in Westminster Library. There's not too much dust on it, I can assure you. But uh, you say very helpfully in summary form that regeneration should not just be understood through the lens of redemptive history, but regeneration is actually taught in Scripture, redemptive historically. Right. For it can only be thoroughly appreciated, you say, from that lens or perspective. Well, and I think that's what was, I guess it shouldn't be surprising to me, but as I looked at the various linchpin texts, so to speak, both in Old and New Testament, I was struck by just how redemptive historically qualified this teaching was in every text. They're all linked. They all link regeneration to the work of Christ. And I think typically, you know, because of the Synod of Dort as sort of a watershed event and the rise of Arminianism, the uh, the desire to combat a heresy has, in some respects, forced us to truncate the doctrine just to focus on the inception of, of new life. When, in fact, the, the redemptive historical significance of it, and looking at it in relationship to Christ and his work and finished work, is really rich. And that's I think that's the biggest thing for me, is that what we've done is not wrong. It's just, I think we've robbed ourselves of the richness. 
In episode 270, we spoke about Calvin's company of pastors with Scott Manich. Scott, would you be able to tell us a little bit about Calvin's venerable company of pastors? What, what exactly is it? How was it structured? What was expected of the duties of these men, um, etc.? Yeah, the, the institution that we know today as the company of pastors emerges uh, in the mid-1540s. And this was a gathering of Geneva's pastors uh, that met uh, every Friday morning, uh, and it included the the pastors who worked in the city. And by the 1550s or 1560s, usually there are about seven or eight pastors who served the city churches. There are three main churches in, within the city walls. But the company of pastors also included uh, pastoral uh uh, staff who were serving small rural parishes in the surrounding countryside. And usually um, there were a, somewhere between 11 to 12 uh, country parishes that were being served by Genevan pastors. So all told, the company of pastors included uh, perhaps 19 or 20 men, uh, sometimes uh, professors from the academy in the arts and in New Testament and Old Testament would also uh, sit uh, on the company of pastors and uh, this group of men were uh, uh, committed to encouraging one another, uh, holding one another accountable. Uh, they were also responsible for the day-to-day -day life of ministry in Geneva, uh, making uh, practical decisions about liturgy and practical decisions about who would preach where. Uh, they would also examine uh, ministerial candidates coming up through the academy. Uh, and finally... As a number of scholars have noted, including uh, Robert Kingdon, the Company of Pastors has a real uh, external view as well. The Company of Pastors becomes kind of the international face of Genevan Calvinism. And uh, as Bob Kingdon showed a number of years ago, the Company of Pastors will send missionaries to France and will correspond with churches in Scotland and in the Netherlands and in uh, Hungary and Poland. So the, there's a real international dimension to the Company of Pastors ministry as well. In a very fun episode, number 273, we spoke about Francis Schaeffer's spirituality with Bill Edgar. Now, I was so excited to see this book uh, here coming out from Crossway. Uh, Dr. Edgar, the one you've written here, Schaeffer on the Christian Life, Countercultural Spirituality. Before we dive into uh, the book. Uh, there is a, a large biographical section here when you describe uh, Francis Schaeffer's life and, and his great influence on so many Christians. But there's also uh, just kind of a personal reflection at the beginning, which I thought was so useful and so warm as well. Could you introduce our listeners to Francis Schaeffer just through your own personal experience here to begin uh, before we get into some of his uh, actual thinking on, on spirituality? Sure, I'll, I'll try. Um, I was at Harvard University, um, sometimes an atheist, at, often an agnostic about anything uh, relating to the Christian faith. And I had a section instructor in one of my courses who was a Christian, wonderful man who's gone to be with the Lord now, uh, but who presented Christianity as a viable alternative to Greek and modernist thought. And he did it in a very convincing and winsome way, not using the classroom as a, you know, pulpit, but just uh, 
by way of intellectual history. And so I was very, very taken with this. I'd never heard anything remotely like it. And we got to be friends. And um, towards the spring of my sophomore year, he suggested that I go visit a friend of his named Francis Schaefer. Uh, I was going to Europe with my brother anyway. And I said, okay. So I wrote down the name and a phone number, I guess. Um, And got to Zurich. My brother wanted to go back to the States. I wanted to stay. And I thought, gosh, maybe this would be a good time to meet this friend of, of Joe Brown's. And so I called him and got Mrs. Schaefer on the phone. And she was so warm. Uh, she said, why don't you come and stay for the weekend? I thought this is kind of interesting for somebody who doesn't <laughs> know me. Um, but, you know, it was the 60s. I had a knapsack on my back and I was up for, you know, uh, excellent adventure. So I took the train down there and um, got to a little village called Remo sur olon which is halfway up the mountain to Villars from uh, the Lake Geneva. And uh, what did I find? But a, a small community of 20, 25 people, um, many of them young people like myself who were seeking or were inquiring. Some, a few were already Christians. And, um, and then I met Francis Schaefer. He was in his early 50s, um, had the most warm, uh, winsome face, very um, gracious, could tell from looking at his eyes, though, that he'd been through a lot. Mm. And um, so we became kind of cordial. And then that night we had a discussion group. And what they call discussion was somebody would ask a question and he would kind of spin off a <laughs> half an hour answer. But um, it was on prayer. And uh, I'll never forget it. I had no idea. Well, I had been to a boarding school, an Episcopal boarding school. So we had prayers every day. So I knew what prayer was but um, had never tried it or knew any detail about it. So it was a riveting discussion. Um, and the next day we had a church service in the living room of this great chalet. And they moved the furniture around. And uh, his son-in-law, Randall McCauley, preached a sermon on Paul and James standing in, in his Macaulay kilt. And uh, for about an hour and a half, he explained the problem and explained the resolution. And, uh, Instead of, you know, cynically thinking, well, I'm happy this is interesting for you, I was I was really quite taken by all of this, didn't understand a lot of it. but um, And then the, what happened next was I had a private talk with Francis Schaefer for a couple of hours just before lunch. Um, and it was in that conversation that I realized Christianity was true, not just intellectually, but I needed to commit to it. And so he led me to Christ and we... Uh, prayed together. I'd never done that. Um, I said, well, what do I say? <laughs> yeah. He said, well, why don't you start with thank you? Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I was, I was so moved and we were both um, praying for friends that we had in common. And that's how I met him. And that's how I began my, my Christian life. That that was in 1964. And I'm still uh, very, very uh, adamant about the Christian faith and have grown a little bit since those days, but struggling with sin like anybody else. Um, so I'm, I will be eternally grateful for God's instrument in leading me to faith, Francis Schaeffer. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. There's there's one example or uh, anecdote you provide early on in the book where you're listening to this lecture, I believe it was on uh, continental philosophy, and it's something that you had apparently studied and knew something about. Uh, what was most striking to you about hearing somebody speak about something you were familiar with at that time? 
Yeah, that was a funny incident. You, you know, um, the, my very first day at Labrie, they invited me into the living room with a bunch of other people, and we were to take peas out of their pods for Sunday lunch. So I was fine, you know, I I could do that. Um, and um, we listened to this tape, and I thought it was a woman speaking about <laughs> uh, existentialism. It was rather articulate. I'd, I had fancied myself an existentialist, and I was pretty much agreeing with this lady, and... Um, uh, it was, you know, quite riveting really. And so after it was over, it turns out it was Schaefer. Um, he had a high voice anyway, but the reel to reel, uh, tape recorder made it even more shrill. And, um, and he, you know, he had learning disabilities, so he, he kept calling him Kirky Gar <laughs> and he, he had uh, other ways to uh, mix up names, um, and uh, we kind of thought it was pretty funny. I don't think he thought it was funny when he no. was a little guy struggling with all this. But, um, you know, he, he kind of said that Kierkegaard represented what he called existentialist methodology, an expression he used over and over again, to refer to um, giving up on rational analysis and what he's called leaping upstairs to the upper story where you didn't have to use rationality and where contradictions were just fine and we didn't have absolutes. Um, later, in, he would have refined his views on Kierkegaard because, um, you know, Kierkegaard scholars recognize that uh, it's much too simple to say that he was the father of existentialism or that he advocated a, a leap upstairs. Um, he, he wasn't as clear as we'd like him to be about faith. And um, you could get the impression on a superficial reading of him that he was an irrationalist. But um, anyway, that being as it may, the analysis was brilliant and the names he used. Uh, and as somebody who had spent a lot of his life thinking about, um, especially the French existentialists, I rather agreed with um with him and and was looking forward to uh discussing some of that with him and you know in the years to come i would have had plenty of opportunity to go deeper into all of that so that yeah that was a uh, my first introduction to his thinking was on a tape where i thought he was a girl <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story we welcome dr lane tipton back to the program in episode number 274 to speak about warfield's important book the plan of salvation on the Wesleyan uh, system, um, they distinguish between um, what we would call unconditional and conditional benefits. Now, this is going to be strange for many of the listeners unless they're familiar with the tradition or come from it. So um, it will, will sound a little odd, but according to the Wesleyan tradition, when Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, that brought unconditional benefits for the sum total of humanity. According to the Wesleyan tradition, all people are born in sin, are born guilty, and born depraved by nature. They are very similar to the Calvinists in that affirmation. Where they differ is that they say, and John Miley is a good illustration of this, um, 19th century um, Wesleyan, they say that the unconditional benefit that was accrued by Christ's death and resurrection was wiping clean the slate of all humanity and placing them in a new probation and giving them the ability now by the atoning death and bodily resurrection of Christ 
to cooperate with the overtures of grace in the gospel. And so the unconditional benefits that flow to every single person in the world, whether those benefits are applied retrospectively to Old Testament uh, era or prospectively into this era, um, it's kind of like a, a new probation where the guilt of Adam's first sin is forgiven and the sinner is now reinstated and enabled by a kind of non-saving universal analogous to prevenient grace um, to cooperate with the conditional benefits offered in the gospel. And those conditional benefits, of course, are um, eternal life, justification, sanctification, and adoption. Now, the question that emerges, and this is what makes the Wesleyan universalist a universalist, um, is the question is, what determines whether or not a person uses the grace that is given by the unconditional benefits and believes the gospel and lays hold of Christ and is justified and sanctified and, and saved from wrath? What determines that? Well, according to the Wesleyan tradition, it's what is found inside of the person. The grace of unconditional benefits saves no one. The determining factor, the final consideration for the person who either accepts the, uh, the conditional benefits and is saved or rejects them is found inside the sinner. And so the reason why there is a distinction between the elect and the reprobate and the reason why God makes that choice is this. On the Wesleyan-Arminian view, he looks down the corridors of time and he sees in advance who's going freely out of his own heart, who's going to appropriate those conditional benefits and be saved. And on the basis of foreseeing a person believing and cooperating with um, unconditional benefits, he, he elects that person. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's that's an interesting view. And then, you know, so where then is boasting? Somebody can actually boast. I think someone could say if it's not God who accounts for the difference between me and the reprobate, then I am the one. I'm the ultimate arbiter there. And if that's the case, it's very easy to say God chose me because he foresaw I had that special something that enabled me to make the right choice. Now, speaking of Lutheranism, um, can you clarify that a little bit? Because that can be a tricky thing, talking Lutheranism, Luther, that, that whatnot. When we're speaking about, or not just us, when Warfield's speaking about Lutheranism under the category of universalism, um, what does he mean? Well, let me make a distinction that I think Warfield would affirm. Martin Luther himself I don't believe, was a universalist in any sense of the term. His bondage of the will is a classic. I think it's a piece of perennial theology, as helpful today as the day it was written. And he makes it absolutely clear that God unconditionally elects his people unto salvation and doesn't condition that on anything he foresees them doing or failing to do. However, the Post-Reformation Lutheran tradition has a doctrine of non-resistance. And the quickest way that I can, can say uh, and explain what that doctrine is is something like this, that the Lutherans want to affirm 
that humanity is totally depraved. They want to affirm, secondly, that God's saving operations toward the creature are sovereign and efficacious and irresistible, and that every single person to whom the gospel comes will be saved by the sovereign power of God unless that person resists. Now, is it possible to resist irresistible grace? A Lutheran says, yes, it is. And the question that is uh, the, the determining feature here is that you will be saved unless you fail to do something, namely, or unless you do something, unless you resist. On the Arminian side, you are saved if you do something, namely believe. Right. On the Lutheran scheme, you're saved if you don't, don't do, do something, something, namely resist. Right. That's letting kind of, that's just in the back door, letting in the back door what came through the front door in the Arminian scheme, that God bases his election of a person on what he either foresees them doing or not doing. And because the grace doesn't actually save but can be resisted, the determining factor is found in the creature, not in God. In episode 277, we spoke about what every Christian needs to know about the Quran with James White. Other than the actual content of the Quran and, and its difference from the Bible, I wanted to ask you briefly about the mechanism of inspiration and how does the Christian one and the Muslim uh, understanding of inspiration differ, and also what role and what source of authority is there in Muslim theology? Wow, a bunch of things there. Mm. We do need to understand that from their perspective, uh, Muslims struggle greatly when they, if they even start looking at the New Testament with texts uh, such as Paul's uh, saying, you know, bring the, the, the cloaks and the parchment. From, that pers- from their perspective, that's just Paul speaking. That, that can't be the, the words of Allah. And so from, from their perspective, uh, from mod- the modern Islamic perspective and understanding of, of the Quranic teaching, I don't think this is necessarily what the, the originator of the Quran thought, whether that was Muhammad. I mean, there's obviously all sorts of argumentation about that. Your, your, your Orthodox Sunni Muslim is going to believe that the, the Quran was dictated from the angel Jibreel to Muhammad. So there's nothing of Muhammad in it. The, the, all of the stuff that we do, looking at backgrounds of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, and the language, and uh, the political situation, and the religious situation in Corinth, all the rest of that stuff, utterly irrelevant to the Muslim in regards to the Quran, because what Muhammad understood, when Muhammad lived, what the politics was, all the rest of that stuff, utterly irrelevant because Muhammad has nothing to do with the Quran. He is simply a, a, a passive typewriter. I mean, if you want uh, dictation theory level of inspiration, it even goes beyond that. And that's why you don't have the kind of literature that you have in Christianity on an exegetical historical background level in looking at the Old and New Testament books in regards to the Quran. There's no reason to do it, because it's not a matter of what Muhammad did or did not understand. That's why the vast majority of the literature is commentary on the Hadith, not upon the text of the Quran itself, uh, which is very, very... It, it, it results in, in real difficulties in our dialogue with Muslims, 
because they're not open to a critical analysis of the text. On, uh, for example, one of the biggest issues that we deal with, uh, that we have to deal with, is the fact that the Quran comes 600 years after Christianity. And so we are directly addressed in the text of the Quran. We are the al-al-kitab, the people of the book, or al-al-injil, the people of the gospel. Sometimes al-al-kitab is the Jews, sometimes it's Christians, sometimes it's both, sometimes we don't know. Uh, it depends on the context. But a couple of times we're the al-al-injil, the people of the gospel itself. So the accuracy of the, of the representation of the Quran, of our belief, is absolutely central to how we can communicate to the Muslim what the differences between us really, what they really are. But that's the whole point. From the Islamic perspective, they have to be accurate, whether they're accurate or not. I mean, I've literally had Muslims, I've, I've said, well, look, this is what the, the Quran says. The Quran says that I am, in essence, promoting the existence of three gods, that I am a polytheist, but that's not what I've ever believed. And I'll take them to texts like Surah 5, 116, where where, where God asked Jesus, did you ever say to the people, worship me and my mother as gods in derogation of Allah? And this is, this is the author of the Quran's understanding. In fact, this is the only place, the, the, the Quran over and over again, Surah 4, Surah 5 especially, says, do not say three. Saying three will send to the hellfire. Saying three is, is an act of shirk. Saying three is unbelief. Three what? Well, the, the only consistent way, and this is why I spent so much time on it in the book, the only consistent way to read the Quran is it's saying three gods. Well, that's not what we've ever believed. And the only time it mentions who the three are is Surah 5116, Allah, Mary, and Jesus. Now, I can understand how someone coming from Mecca who had very little exposure to Christianity might stick his head inside a, a church in Syria when he's on a caravan trip into that area, and he looks around and he sees statuary. This is Remember, this is the uh, you know, beginning of the 7th century. And so he would see artistic representations of God as creator. He would see crucifixes. Um, he would see Mary uh, everywhere. Obviously, uh, the exaltation of, of Mary was uh, much earlier than that and was, was still progressing at that point in time. What he wouldn't see would be a representation of the Holy Spirit that would, that would strike him as, as deity, probably as a dove or something like that. So you've got God the Creator, you've got Jesus on the cross, you've got a woman carrying a baby. Makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, but the question is, if this comes from God, didn't God know what the Trinity was uh, around you know, 610 A.D.? Even if the Trinity's wrong, God knew what it was in 610 A.D. and could have accurately described it. But there is no accurate description of the doctrine of the Trinity anywhere to be found in the text of the Quran. But the problem is, the Muslim looks at our text anachronistically. He's looking at our text through the lens of the Quran, which is the final revelation, and even though there is really great argumentation as to whether the Quran teaches this, 99.9% of the Muslims you're going to talk to have been taught that our scriptures have been corrupted. And that in fact, the Gospel was a book given to Jesus, not four books given to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And since we don't have it anymore, parts of it are still in what we call the New Testament today, but most of it is not uh, what was, was actually originally given, and many of them feel, ha have very strong uh, negative feelings about Paul, uh, almost any, all the negative Pauline stuff that, that you have ever read, they'll, they'll pick up on that kind of stuff and, and I believe that to be the case. And so they look through the Quran and they see our text as being corrupted, and so they don't have a basis upon which to 
critically analyze the Quran itself on the level of, hey, you're actually the new kid on the block. Uh, I mean, look at, I've, I've tried to point, help them to understand this by saying, well, look at the relationship of the Old and New Testament. Look, for example, at the book of Hebrews. Look at, look at the number of quotations from the Old, of the Old Testament that's found in the New Testament, and the understanding of the, of the language and the argumentation. All the, there's this really, really, really tight uh, connection here. And you look at the Quran, and there's only one verse quoted verbatim. It, it, there's one other possibility uh, that, that there might be one other quote from the, from the Psalms, but there's uh, even Muslim scholars question that one. There's, there's only really one that we can come up with, and that is the Lex Talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Uh, there's no direct quotations of the, of the New Testament at all. The author of the Quran does not know our scriptures in any way, shape, or form. But the modern Muslim uh, believes that our scriptures have been totally corrupted. Many of the early Muslims did not believe that, because the Quran actually says, that describes our books, the Torah and the Injil, as containing light and guidance. And in Surah 5, we're specifically told, uh, the people of the Gospel are told to judge by what is contained therein. And the fihi there, the, the only antecedent in Arabic, is the Gospel. Well, how can we judge if we don't have it anymore? It just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. And so, for, for years, you could find both streams of, of teaching in Islamic uh, history, that is, there were those who interpreted the change of our scriptures to be an interpretive one, and that the scriptures had not themselves been changed. And then others who had said the actual wording had been changed. What changed, what, what, what made it to where 99% of the Muslims today think that our scriptures have been corrupted, uh, took place actually in India in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, a scholar there wrote a book called Itzar al-Haq, and what he did is he, he went and he took all the German liberalism, he went to, and, and all, the, all the redaction critics and all the rest of that stuff, and he just grabbed all that stuff and put together just one of the most horrific books you'll ever read. I mean, if you ever read It's Arl Hawk, I'm not done with it myself, it's like 19 <laughs> hours in MP3, but uh, if you ever read it, it's just uh, painful to listen to this stuff. But that is the most influential book amongst Muslims worldwide in regards to alleged contradictions in the Bible and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And uh, so that's where uh, you know, things have changed, and it's really become the perspective on their part. At the same time, ironically, uh, almost every Muslim I, I debate, uh, one, of the, one of the books that they have on their desk is, a, is some Bart Ehrman book, uh, you know, something like that. I, I debated a, a Muslim at Duke University a number of years ago, and you know, three of the four books he had on his, on his table were by, by Bart Ehrman. They love Bart Ehrman, but they will not apply the worldview or the critical perspective of Bart Ehrman to the Quran. Uh, they, most, most Muslims have no earthly idea that the Quran has a textual history. Uh, most, most of them have no idea what it is, They've, they've never uh, read enough of the Hadith to realize that there was, even in the Islamic sources, uh, the narration of what's called the Uthmanic Revision, uh, which took place around 650 uh, A.D., which involved uh, the creation of a, an edited version, the destruction of the materials that were used to create the version, uh, that there were people who rejected that. Abdullah ibn Masud had his own readings, and that the, the early tafsir literature, tafsir means commentary on the Quran, the early tafsir literature, uh, openly and without uh, problem, uh, discusses variations between 
uh, Abdullah ibn Masud and uh, Ubay ibn Kab and, and the revision of Uthman and all the rest of this stuff. The vast majority of Christians, of course, have never heard any of this. The vast majority of Muslims have never heard of, about any of this. And so it's, it's really amazing to talk to Muslims who will quote Bart Ehrman to you, but they have no earthly idea that their text likewise has a textual history. And uh, when you start showing them things, I remember I did a debate at a, a very large liberal Presbyterian church in Queens. And, uh, I mean, this, this church, a beautiful, beautiful church, but there probably hadn't been more than 20 people in it in the past 50 years uh, because it had gone super liberal and, and, you know, it just died. And they let us have this debate here. And we had 1,000 people in there, a standing room only, 800 people seated, 200 people standing. I mean, I'm sure it violated every fire code in the book. But uh, uh, when I showed textual variations in the Quran, especially like at Surah 2, 222, where when you compare the Fogg's Palimpsest manuscript or the uh, Sa'ana Palimpsest manuscript, there are three different readings. And we're not, we're not just talking about minor textual variation, variation here. We're talking about word order, grammatical terminations, clear editing has taken place, and you have three different readings. It was quiet as a tomb in that room, because I can guarantee you there wasn't a single Muslim in that room that had ever seen any of that before. Uh, so the problem is, where do you get that stuff? Where do you track that stuff down? Well, I've spent years, and God's people have been very generous, but a lot of these books come from Brill. And if you know Brill, uh, <laughs> you know that uh, just, just, uh, just the encyclopedia of the, of, of the Quran, each volume is $369 a piece. Uh, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. Uh, most of this stuff is buried in libraries. Uh, to, to actually track this kind of stuff down, very, very difficult to do. It's, it's been a long process, and there's so much more work that needs to be done in this area. There, the Corpus Chronicum program is going on. We're working toward a critical, critical edition of the Quran, but even then, uh, just of, obtaining the materials, getting access to materials, especially in Islamic countries, because especially places like Saudi Arabia, places like that, they don't want you to have access to that kind of stuff. The other, all they see is negative there, not, not anything positive. Um, so the vast, vast difference between the approach we have, you know, the, the newly released Nestle Island 28 and, and all the work that's going on in that area, uh, over against the, the study of the original manuscripts of the, of the, well, not original, but earliest manuscripts of the Quran, very, very different, uh, very, very different, and much work needs to be done in that area. In episode 281, we welcome John Currid to Christ the Center to speak about the polemical theology of the Old Testament. It seems like more, uh, you know, orthodox and, and definitely reformed Old Testament scholars are are more rare um, than than in New Testament. Yeah. And maybe I'm wrong on that, but have you thought about that? At least from my experiences, is that the case? Number one, and um, why is that the case? Maybe I, I think that's right. Um, I always uh, uh, when you see that perhaps. Uh, problems are beginning at seminaries and so forth, a lot of people look directly at the Old Testament department. Uh, I think it's because of our training, um, uh, especially when you're dealing with the Old Testament that is uh, it covers a period of hundreds and hundreds of years over against the New Testament, which covers, you know, at the most, a 70-year period, that that leaves room for development, evolution of uh, texts and, and all of that. Um, 
and uh, we're also dealing with numerous cultures, Syria, Babylon, Egypt, Canaan, uh, so forth, uh, that it's a much broader swath of history. And therefore, I think that, that allows some of that in. Our, a lot of our training as well uh, is a training in, in de, uh, disharmony and suspicion, uh, always questioning uh, uh, the scriptures, uh, accepting ancient Near Eastern texts, but questioning the scriptures. At least that's yeah, my, exactly. been my experience. In episode 289, we welcomed Scott Oliphant to the program to speak about his excellent book, Covenantal Apologetics. I think this sets the stage for the for the entire book. You're right. The beauty of this approach and what sets it off from any other apologetic method is that it is naturally and centrally focused on the reality of God's revelation in Christ, including, of course, the good news of the gospel. This might seem odd to people, but... Um, we can't take that for granted with other apologetic approaches, can we? No, not at all. And that is uh, the thing that initially attracted me to Van Til's approach uh, decades ago when I started reading Van Til. And in my view, this is the only approach that allows for a seamless move from an apologetic argument to uh, into the presentation of the gospel. And, and I, I think, um, you know, we have to be clear that um, for whatever uh, reason— and I think there are a lot of reasons we can discuss, uh, any other apologetic approach is going to have to be satisfied simply with a kind of bare theism. And if you move, in another approach, if you move from bare theism uh, to a presentation of the gospel, you have inevitably shifted your foundation. Now, that doesn't mean it can't be done, but it does mean that, um, you know, a, a, a an unbeliever who's, um, who's uh, self-conscious and who's... who's um, trained to think in this way, we'll see that there, uh, there, there's been a, uh, a game change in that sense, and, and we'll see the inconsistencies. And, and I think what we see in this approach, and Van Til's approach, and the approach that I'm, I'm setting forth in, in my book, which I think is the same approach as Van Til's, um, there, because you begin with um, who God is and what he has said, um, that's going to inevitably lead you to uh, redemption as it's found in Christ. And no other approach does that. I, I think that's uh, that's not an overstatement. No other approach is able consistently to do that based on that foundation. Who is called to do apologetics? And more basically, what particularly is your understanding of the apologetic task? Good. The... Um, the passage in First Peter, um, in my view, and I think you can show this exegetically. I, I actually do this in in Battle Belongs to the Lord. First um, Peter three fifteen, uh, we're called, uh, commanded to uh, set Christ apart as Lord, and in setting Him apart, what that means, at least in part, is that we are uh, able and ready to give a defense. Now that command. Um, that we have in Scripture is given to the church. It's not given to um, to academics. It's not given to scholars. Um, academics can do it. Uh, academics ought to do it. Um, hopefully, uh, for me, academics ought to teach it, um, or I'm without a job. But in 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 the in the main, what Scripture's telling us is that every Christian is commanded and therefore able to give a defense, to give a reason for the hope that is within us. 
And that means if God has commanded us to do it, he's given us the resources to do it. So you don't need a PhD in philosophy. You don't need a a PhD in theology. Um, You don't need a seminary education in order to defend the Christian faith. What you need is, as I say to my students, premeditated evangelism. You need to, to be able to understand the Bible in such a way that you make it, you know how to make it relevant to objections and problems that come our way from unbelief. In episode 291, we spoke about the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. We spoke with Dr. Mike Emlett. Now, how is the DSM maintained and updated? If this is the fifth edition, how do they go about uh, you know, changing things and, and updating it for the present day? So, yes, um, one of the – I mean, there, there are a number – of committees that that form over over time, and I probably don't have the ins and outs of the actual detailed process, but I do know that um, with with the DSM five, they they have a they have a number of committees. There's like a for example like a uh, a mood disorders working group or a, um, a a psychotic disorders working group, for lack of a better term. Um, a group of psychiatrists who are particularly interested or have expertise in particular areas who are also also using the DSM, this is one of its other uses, as a, as a research uh, tool. So, for example, if you're, if you're developing new treatments or trying to develop new treatments for schizophrenia, well, first you have to be able to enroll patients who are correctly diagnosed. And so the, the DSM serves, serves that role um, to, be able to, to be able to do that. And so over time, what happens is as, uh, as people make observations in their own uh, clinical practices, as they do research, um, as people, as, as psychiatrists in the community are reporting, hey, we've seen X, Y, and Z. We've seen an uptick in this this particular group of uh, symptoms among these people that comes onto the radar screen, and maybe there's a study group that is uh, that is put together. And this is the, and this has been a long process for the for the DSM five. The the DSM four came out in 1996, yeah. um, and there was a a revision, a, a mild revision, a slight revision in 2000, but this has been a very uh, long uh, process. And what happens is then once you uh, once you have all this data, then you start to propose you need to make a change in this particular diagnosis. Um, for example, here's one of the changes that happened with the DSM-5. In past, in the in the DSM four, there were separate categories for um, autistic disorders. So they were called the pervasive developmental disorders, and classical autism was one of them. Asperger's syndrome was another, and then there were several other ones that are much less known. One of the things that's happened over time is, as people have studied this group of disorders, is they realize, you know what? This is more of a spectrum issue, there, as opposed to separate kinds of entities. So, with the DSM five, you don't have those separate entities. You have you have the autistic spectrum um, disorders, and and I think that's one of the things that that comes out of a 
you know, out of the process. Sometimes you actually decrease the number of diagnoses. Other times you're proposing new diagnoses. The DSM-5 actually has slightly less diagnoses than its, than its predecessor. That hasn't been the case in general. It's generally been increasing the, the number of diagnoses with each, with each edition. Um, and then with the DSM-5, as these proposals for either changing diagnostic criteria or adding new diagnoses were put out there for public comment so that um, psychiatrists, um, counselors, um, people could make comments about it and you know whether how, how much of that feedback was taken into consideration I don't know but it was a it, it certainly was not a, a closed off process when they yeah. got to a certain stage it was put out there for for widespread um, comment well the uninitiate might get this idea that, that it's some sort of scientific findings book that there are people in laboratories experimenting on patients and then writing down all the descriptive elements that of, of some problem this person has in their brain. But this is more or less seems to be committee work and polling of people to come up with criteria that loosely group uh, people together into, into, common, into common groups that exhibit certain characteristics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, that, that's exactly right. The, the, the diagnoses... Um, and I would say that over time, the, the DSM has moved from less of a complete, here's a, here's a small group of experts coming to consensus about certain things, to a, I think, a better, uh, more open uh, process where they're, they're also taking into account um, research and use of medications, things like that. So I think there's, it definitely is more than just, you know, a, a group of um guys sitting around smoking oh, sure. cigars in a back room for sure. <laughs> um, thinking of Sigmund Freud. Um, yeah, exactly. So it, it, but, um, but I think what it is, what's important to keep in mind is that these are, these are descriptions of, um, of disordered thinking, mood and, and behavior. And it, the, in general, I mean, Alzheimer's would be a clear, exception to that. Um, but in, in general, you're not, um, there's not, they're not laboratory tests. There's not MRIs, brain scanning, those kinds of things that are used to make psychiatric diagnoses. These are based on uh, symptoms and signs that people present um, to their, you know, to their counselor, to their psychiatrist or wh- whoever they're seeing. So I, I think that's, that is important. And I think that actually gives us um, both courage and, and boldness as, uh, as pastors and biblical counselors that we, we simply, we need to, we ought not to be scared off by diagnoses, but that, that's, that may simply signal, oh, okay, here, here are the kinds of things a person may struggle with. Now let me get to know them. <laughs> let me get to know the ins and outs of their lives uh, and see if we can, we can help them. In episode 299, we spoke with David Murray about his book, Jesus on Every Page, and an approach to biblical theology. You've divided this book into two major parts. Uh, The first is what you call My Road to Emmaus, you've alluded to. Uh, What are some steps or some things that uh, started to unfold the fact that Jesus is on every page? Yeah, 
I try to explain, first of all, of course, my confusion and how I just I couldn't figure out, you know, why would God have given us so much Bible in the Old Testament if it was so useless as, as it seemed to me? And um, the actual the major turning point was and people find this hard to believe, but in all my ignorance, I was actually asked to teach the Old Testament in a little seminary in right. Scotland. <laughs> I, was, I think I was the most unqualified person in the world to do that. But as with everything, when you're asked to teach something, you start learning it. Yeah. And it forced me into this. Uh, um, and again, I just started getting great books and resources, especially from America, from Westminster, from RTS and began to just, this just began to open up, especially that Luke 24 passage with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And then, you know, seeing what Kaiser expounded for me, First Peter 1, 10 through 12, again, just a huge breakthrough moment for me. I struggled with some issues in Paul's writing where he seemed to be against the Old Testament, seemed to set it up very much against the New um, but again, some helpful resources enabled me to see that he wasn't portraying the Old Testament as properly understood against the New, but the Old Testament as perverted, as misunderstood against the New. And so that began to help me seeing passages like Second Corinthians 3, uh, Galatians 3 and 4 in a new light. And you know to see that Paul, Peter, Jesus uh, and John were consistent in their views of the Old Testament being Christ-centered. It's such a, it's a, a pastoral issue, isn't it, at the end of the day? Because um, this, your book especially touches on just how you read the Old Testament and how people in the pew are going to approach um, even some of the obscure passages. And I was wondering, um, based on the book, if you could kind of give um, just the, the Christian who's reading their Old Testament um, some kind of direction on um, you know, seeing Christ in the Old Testament on every page, but not necessarily having that be like a burden and, and a hunt. And you describe a lot of the dangers surrounding that. But what kind of pastoral um, suggestions would you give based on uh, what you've written here? Okay, I think the the key question for people when they're reading their Old Testament is uh, two key questions. One, uh, what did this teach the original readers about God? And secondly, what did it teach the original readers about salvation? And just as we read the Bible with these two questions in our mind, or at least we should, so Old Testament believers did the same. They, they weren't just reading their national history. They weren't just reading a book of law. They weren't just reading about ritual and some nice stories. They, they knew this was a book that was to teach them about who God was and how God saved. The whole Old Testament is this has this forward-looking momentum from Genesis 3.15 onwards. And these people were being trained uh, through these uh, scriptures to seek God and seek God's salvation. So I think for us, when we read the Old Testament, it's to, the, the difficulty is to try and make that step back and say, okay, how did Mr. and Mrs. Israelite read Genesis? How did they read Ruth? How did they read Samuel? How did they read Proverbs? with these two questions in mind. What does this teach me about God? And what does this teach me about God's salvation? How did the even the Old Testament prophets and uh, the people who were inspired by the Lord, 
uh, understand uh, what they were actually saying and writing? Was there a forward focus and an anticipation that was even evident to them as they were writing God's God's Word under the inspiration of the Spirit? Yeah, obviously there's a lot of debate over how much the prophets knew. Did they know everything? Did they know nothing? Um, I think what the New Testament teaches us is the answer somewhere in between. And I think this is one of the keys to understanding the Old Testament, to look at how the New Testament interprets it and and gives us principles. Uh, Walt Kaiser gives a brilliant exposition of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, 10 through 12 in his book, New Testament Use of the Old Testament. And um, he points to these verses that, that describe what the prophets did and what they understood. And it's quite amazing if you just pause and look at it. What they knew, they knew that the Messiah would come. They knew that the Messiah would suffer. They knew he would be glorified. They knew the order was suffering, then glory. But Peter says they also knew that for all that they knew, there was more to be known, that future generations would understand far more of their messages than they did themselves. So, yes, they had a, they knew who, but the details, when, no, they didn't know that. That remained to be revealed. In a very special episode, episode number 300, we welcomed hip-hop artist Timothy Brindle to speak about communicating the gospel through hip-hop. I think that's a great transition into talking about hip-hop as a form for communicating the gospel. Yeah. Uh, Ken Myers, who's a, who's a, a great uh, servant, somebody who's done just tremendous amount of work of, of integrating Christianity with culture and, and talking about those things. He's, uh, he's the guy behind the Mars Hill audio program, but he recently mm-hmm. argued um, that the form of hip-hop music is ill-suited for communicating the full range, at least, of the biblical message. Um, at least in my my understanding of his of his criticism, he would say that while it may communicate anger and wrath well, those kinds of things, he seemed to argue that it is deficient for communicating grace, for instance, and other aspects of the biblical message that are important when we're teaching and when we're proclaiming the truth. What are your thoughts on hip hop as a form, and how would you respond to this criticism in particular? Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's it's very. Um, in many ways, it makes sense um, in the sense that hip hop has been used uh, in so many uh, evil ways. And it's hard to think that it as a music form or as a culture is redeemable. Um, so I, I think that's somewhat understandable. And his arguments aren't really new. There's been other guys in the past um, that have made some of the same challenges and had some of the same concerns in the past, though they may, may might have had different grounds. Um, and so I think uh, it's interesting, though, uh, I didn't seem to be very redeemable either in the deadness of my sin. <laughs> and yet, um, is Christ the resurrector? I think maybe it's, it's, it's a misunderstanding of what is uh, redemption um, in, in, in a biblical theology way and understanding redemptive history. And what is Christ's intent? Uh, and what does it mean that that in, in the cross he's restored all things or he's redeemed all things or reconciled all things um, to himself, that Colossians 1 language? And I think it's an it, it interesting maybe um, response to some of those thoughts that, namely, uh, if I can summarize it, um, this brother in the Lord says, 
hip hop as a form really can't be used to communicate um, um, Christ in the gospel. Is that correct? Roughly speaking, I don't want to uh, oversimplify it, but right, that seems right. to be the at least the full range of of the truth that's contained in Scripture and, and right. revealed in Scripture. Yeah, yeah. I think usually when people make those arguments, they usually haven't heard um, a lot right. of Christ in hip hop yet. Right. Exactly. Um, but even if they have, uh, it's interesting reading Voss's book, Biblical Theology. He does a wonderful job in showing uh, the contrast in Genesis four between you know the line of Seth. And uh, the line of Cain, Voss just makes a really good point in his biblical theology book. That many of the things that are emphasized in Cain's lines are cultural things. And in particular, um, in Genesis 4, uh, 21, there's, it mentions Jubal, who's the father of all, who played the lyre in the pipe. Yeah. So most likely Jubal being in the fallen line of Cain was probably not using the lyre in the pipe to the glory of God. <laughs> Um, as as it's clear later on in you know Genesis 11 that some of these same cultural or or things like instruments and cities are you know are used for for the glory of self. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's really interesting is we find in the Psalms in some of those um, you know instructions in the beginning of of certain Psalms it says to the lyre player to the player of the lyre to the player of the flute or the harp or the pipe. So I just see really interesting that. The Lord, in even in in, um, in Davidic psalmetry, is, there's clearly some form of redemption of culture, some form of redemption of music, where these same instruments that were were probably uh, used for uh, lack of better language, secular music, yeah. um, not glorifying Yahweh, are now being used um, in in the service uh, of worshiping the, the true and living God. Um, in, in, in Davidic worship and in the midst of uh, the Levitical priesthood. And I think it's just a, a rich picture that the, the issue wasn't necessarily the form of music right. um, as the sound of, uh, of the... And, and who's, of the, of but the who's doing it and how are they doing it? The, the manner mm-hmm. in which and the heart from which they, they right. do these cultural pursuits. That's right. And yeah. what is the content? It's, it's the mm. glory of the Lord. Um, so in the same way, I think that's just a good picture that um, a musical medium like hip hop, which which can be selfishly, sinfully used for the glory of man, can also be redeemed and restored and reconciled back to Christ, so that now you have um, generate believers uh, proclaiming Him uh, over uh, hip hop beats. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think it's different than any other form of music that is used. Uh, in that sense, for the glory of God. That, I think that's that's really helpful the way that you put that because the word you know redeeming culture gets thrown around there as a as a phrase that gets used indiscriminately. But I think right. the way you've alluded is the fact that this redemption happens through the regenerating work of the Spirit in the lives of people, and their mm-hmm. souls are redeemed. But then those redeemed souls go on in their cultural pursuits, seeking to glorify God. And there are forms that can be used uh, in those in service of that greater pursuit. I think that's a better way to think about this, you know, in, in terms of redemption and cultural pursuits. And I appreciate the way you've talked about it. And finally, our last clip in episode number 307, we spoke with David Gibson, Jonathan Gibson, and Carl Truman about definite atonement. Can you just briefly summarize what you were trying to do in connecting uh, this topic to the covenant of redemption in eternity? What I was trying to do was demonstrate the 
the complexity of the doctrine. And what I mean by that is how the doctrine of atonement cannot be treated in isolation. We have a tendency to want to, to just go to the Bible and, and demand that it answers a particular narrow question uh, relative to a doctrinal formulation that's taken place over time. Whereas actual fact, I think what the history of theology does is it, it gives you a genealogy for any particular idea. And when you come to study the, the doctrine of limited atonement in the way in which it came to be formulated in the 17th century, you realize that it cannot be treated in isolation. It has connections to predestination, self-evidently so. It also has significant connection to Trinitarianism and Christology. One of the issues with which the Reformed are wrestling at the start of the 17th century is, is how Christ can be said to be mediator according to both natures. Roman Catholic theologians uh, uh, were, were very concerned to emphasize that Christ could only be mediator uh, according to his human nature because it made no sense for God to be the mediating point between God and creation. It would imply that God somehow became less than God to do that. The Reformers placed a great emphasis upon Christ mediating as a person. Mediation is an act, and it's persons who act, not natures. And so that meant that one could only ever discuss the acts of the person of Christ as mediator once one had resolved that first question about how is it that Christ, the incarnate God-man, can be mediator. And that requires that, the, the, for want of a better word, the mechanism by which Christ's humiliation can take place be connected to, to all aspects of his priestly office. So one cannot talk about the atonement without talking about the humiliation of Christ. And one cannot talk about the humiliation of Christ without talking about the covenant of redemption in eternity which you won't find the phrase in the Bible, but it was the concept that theologians in the, the, the early 17th century developed to explain how it could be that the second person of the Trinity could undergo, for example, what is described in the Bible in Philippians 2. So the burden of my chapter on that level was to, to show that you may want to ask the question, is limited atonement biblical or not? But the first task is to understand why the church came to think about the atonement in the way it did, and that requires connecting the atonement to the incarnation and the incarnation to the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and can I just, I mean, that's excellent. Can I just add that, I mean, without in any way claiming that this book goes anywhere near Owen's uh, definitive treatment, which I think it, I think it is, um, that's why we felt it's vitally important that a, a new treatment of this, this doctor, of this topic has four sections, historical, biblical, theological, pastoral, because what we're trying to do is deliberately move beyond uh, biblicism, simply quoting texts, uh, you know, the universal sounding texts, you've got limited sounding texts. And what we're intending is not, and we, we, we use in, in, in the introduction and three different images for how we imagine the, the book to work. It's, it's like a house, it's like a web, it's like a map. And I mean, in terms of the house image, rather than the four sections of the book being four separate windows that you look through to see the doctrine, we're imagining actually that you open the door and walk in to the house and the four uh, sections of the book, if you like, are the four mezzanine levels of the, of the one house where definite atonement lives. In other words, 
when you understand church history, then you will read the Bible more richly. When you understand the way theologians have tried to put different strands of the exegetical evidence together, and you wrestle with that, then you come back to the Bible and read it more richly. And I think Carl's chapter on Owen and Baxter is a really good example of that, that this is not two theologians simply trading texts with each other, but actually an overarching framework that may or not may or may not be faithful to the Bible, but which is there and has to be wrestled with. And in that, in that sense, if I can just add, I think people from a distance will look at this book and think, oh, there's just another edited volume, you know, 21 individual chapters that don't really interact or relate. In that sense, it really is quite a unique book. We, we had quite a lot of interaction between contributors, between editors and contributors to ensure that the house was standing <laughs> strong at the end, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. to, to ensure that everything was actually sinking um, and people yeah. were complementing each other, etc. There are some differences. Yeah, there, there are differences, happens, yeah. But it's, you know, it, it is an edited volume that is quite unique. And our opening chapter is trying to be an essay that helps you read, hopefully, the Bible better on definite atonement, but also helps you read this book as a whole book and not just individual chapters within it. And I think one of the things worth mentioning as well is the the level of argument that one finds in the popular rejection of limited atonement is really very poor. Now, if you look mm-hmm. at somebody like Mark Driscoll, for example, who's able to, to dismiss it in just a few pages, as if slapping down a couple of universal-sounding proof texts uh, is enough to deal with the issue. Well, you know, John Owen was a master of the biblical languages. Uh, he was a master exegete. It's unlikely that he was unaware of those biblical texts. It's unlikely that he was, that he was unaware of the challenge they posed for his articulation of, of limited atonement. And that should set alarm bells ringing in people's minds. This was a doctrine that took shape over many decades or centuries. It is finely tooled and intricate. It simply can't be dismissed by these very simplistic popular treatments that one finds. Well, while we're on the subject, um, Jonathan or David, I'm wondering if you could tell us about uh, Dr. Schreiner's uh, contribution here where he does take up those problematic texts. What are some of the texts that are sticking points uh, to people accepting this doctrine, and, and how does Dr. Schreiner address those? Um, well, his chapter is, uh, in that sense, rather polemical. It's really just addressing all the problematic texts that you find uh, in discussions on um, limited atonement, definite atonement. So he deals with 1 Timothy 2, Uh, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Uh, Titus 2, 11 to 14, salvation has appeared for all people. Um, 2 Peter 2, 1, uh, referring to the false teachers who deny the master who bought them. Um, Agarazzo, the the Greek word there, redeem, is um, uh, to buy, is used of uh, Christians in the New Testament being purchased by Christ's blood. Um, 2 Peter 3 9 uh, God is patient not willing that any should perish but that everyone should come to repentance and then Hebrews 2 9 uh, Christ tasted death for everyone and so what Tom Schreiner does in that chapter is really meticulously goes through each of those texts and carefully exegetes them in their 
literary historical contexts and basically exposes he's not trying to argue that these texts prove definite atonement far from it what he's just trying to say is they don't disprove definite atonement when you actually understand them in their contexts to take one example is uh, 2 peter 2 1 he basically shows that what happens in that chapter is that the false teachers later on in the chapter are spoken of phenomenologically as believers at one point. And so he's saying that it's quite normal and logical for uh, Peter to write uh, about the false teachers in categories that you would describe a Christian in. You know, yeah. they, they were bought by Christ at one point in their life as professing baptized members of a church community. You could say, of course, Christ died for them. Um, and so he he sort of very carefully uh, shows that in that context, the phenomenological language makes perfect sense. But that does not prove um, that Christ actually propitiated the Father's wrath for the false teachers. Because if he, if he did, then you have the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints comes into play. Well, if they were then saved at one point, purchased by Christ, do they lose their salvation? You know, so again, back to sort of Carl's point, these things are all connected in a web or in a network of um, connections theologically. Thank you so much for listening to our year-end review. We very much appreciate all of your support, and uh, more than that, we appreciate your encouragement through the year 2013. We look forward to a very strong 2014, and we pray uh, to the Lord that Reformed theology would continue to flourish, that more and more people would grow deeper in their faith and come to know Jesus Christ more closely as he works by his spirit in their hearts. Uh, We do, of course, want you to visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs as well as how to get in touch with us. We have a contact page on the website. You can also tweet us at Reformed Forum or, of course, email us at mail at reformedforum.org. We look forward to hearing from you and hope that you'll join us again next time on Christ the Center.